It's really um, my privilege to be able to teach in this kind of environment, um, especially to be teaching partly about the subject of the gallery. Uh, I will talk about Downton Abbey too, so if you came because you're a fan, I'll get there. And thank all of you for coming. Uh, it's really great that you're willing to take your lunch break or whatever it might be to do this. So I'm going to start with a little anecdote, actually, that Suzanne over here told me, which is that she told her colleague that she was coming to see the Amy Winehouse Museum uh, exhibit at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. And her colleague said, oh, I thought she was British. <laughs> and that reaction, it gets a laugh, right? Because we all understand that those two things are not mutually exclusive. But in a way, um, it's a reaction that's possible. Um, whereas if I were to reveal to you that Gwyneth Paltrow is Jewish, there's no possible way that you could say, oh, she's Jewish? I thought she was American. So it doesn't work in quite the same way. And in fact, there's a lot of content in the hyphen between Jewish and American when we talk about being a Jewish American that we don't see in Britain. Um, and that's because the history of Jews and national identity are so different there. I'm going to read a little quotation. This is from a book that was written in 1989, so it's old, um, but it, it gives a real taste of what Jewish identity is like in Britain. British Jews loyal to their religious and cultural tradition have always sought to adopt the lowest possible profile. It is certainly respectable to be Jewish in Britain, but it's neither exciting nor chic. To express your Jewishness is perceived as embarrassing. It isn't done in Britain to proclaim your Jewishness. That's by a scholar named Stephen Brooke. So low profile, uh, which is probably not a way that we would describe either Amy Winehouse or American Jewishness. So after World War II, uh, in Jewish studies, there tends to be a dichotomy set up where we talk about either American Jewry or Israeli Jewry. We often contrast them, especially when we're talking about uh, cultural expression. And England provides a nice foil to those sort of two strongholds of Jewish cultural Jewishness. And here, if you've had the chance to look around the gallery, that's wonderful. If you haven't, I hope you will after uh, the talk, or I guess during. Um, there is a Jewish cookbook over there. There are some photographs from uh, Amy Winehouse's brother's bar mitzvah over there. Um, but fans of Amy Winehouse or people that have followed her um, are aware that she, during her very brief adulthood, she was not a religious Jew. She was not even a particularly expressive cultural Jew in the way we might think of um, in the US. Um, and that's part, another reason why it's possible for Suzanne's friend to say, oh, I thought she was British, right? Because she's not. We can, we can be a fan of Amy Winehouse without thinking immediately of her Jewishness. It is possible. So to try and get us started thinking about what I mean by Jewish cultural expression, um, what are some of the ways that somebody could be a Jewish American besides religiously? What's a, a common symbol of a Jewish American culture? Food, uh, philanthropy, um, yeah, so bagels, Seinfeld, right? Fiddler on the roof. These are all very, um, they're almost too obvious to mention. That, again, we don't have those obvious signifiers in Britain. Um, it's, it's so common here, so recognizable that it almost goes without saying. Um, and so because we have that, it's easy to kind of imagine that the same thing exists in our other English-speaking country. It is not the same thing. Um, and so Amy Winehouse doesn't fall into any of those known categories of Jewishness that we think of in the American context. Um, so here's what I would like to do. I would like to think about Amy Winehouse's appropriation of black American culture, so that is jazz and soul, 
as an expression of her Jewishness. Okay? So that's kind of a loaded idea, and I'm going to kind of work through that here a little bit. First of all, there is a historical relationship between Jews and uh, jazz, not just a symbolic one, but an actual hands-on physical one. Um, there's the songwriters of Tin Pan Alley, like Ira Gershwin, right, who were writing those jazz standards in the 20s. Um, there's the business side of music. Jews were from the beginning of jazz becoming popular in white America. Jews were at the helm of the business side of that. Um, and while it's always been understood to be a black American music form, anti-Semites and racists have had no trouble combining the Jewish-black alliance there um, as a way to talk about how jazz is dangerous um, and, and dirty. Um, and while this is an American uh, art form, this carried over a little bit into Great Britain, where in the 1950s, the big brass band leaders, the dance band leaders, were regularly Jewish. So there's a piece in the adjacent gallery, and I hope you'll take a look over there as well. And that has um, a piece that deals with this relationship, so I hope you will go and take a look at that. So to, to talk a little bit about cultural appropriation, it doesn't always have to be racist and offensive on the one hand, or homage on the other hand. And in fact, I think both of those things are generally present when we talk about cultural uh, appropriation. So if you want to imagine um, an Indian in colonial British India who was adopting the dress and the foods and the accent and the other cultural practices of the British, uh, we don't look at that person and say, oh, he's appropriating British culture, right? Instead, the rhetoric was that, oh, he's becoming civilized. Whereas if you have a white performer who wears a bindi and dances Bollywood style uh, during her performances, that's cultural appropriation. So this is always a kind of top-down thing and that establishes the hierarchies. So that example of the colonizer and the colonized, it doesn't have a perfect translation to the Jewish case, since Jews are regularly occupying a kind of middle space. Um, not entirely white, but not completely black. And Jews were envisioned as one of the so-called dark races. And in the US, they worked very hard to enforce their whiteness or to, to become white. Now, I don't believe that Amy Winehouse was aware of this. I don't know if she would have described what she was doing as appropriation. But I do believe that her Jewishness gave her access to black American culture um, in a way that protected her from accusations of racism because of that middle space. And this use of black American music positions her in a long tradition of secular Jewish cultural appropriation. So secular Jews have historically expressed their Jewishness through an alignment with other cultures. Um, consider Jewish activism in the black and gay civil rights movements. Consider the major second wave feminist figures, many of them Jewish. Consider other types of alignments, Jewish Buddhists, for example, many of whom are in the Bay Area. And I believe that Winehouse's use of black American culture through jazz was part of that phenomenon. Uh, this is not an original idea that I came up with. It comes from this book, an essay by Nomi Simon in the book American Jews and Multiculturalism, Insider, Outsider. And the essay is actually called Fag Hags and Jew Boos. And she talks about what she calls a politics of vicarious identity. So Jews lacking a, a content to their own secular Jewishness, not having those things to fill it with, 
fill it with their alignment with other marginalized peoples vicariously, right? So that's how they express their Jewishness. And I think of Winehouse's association with black American culture as an example of that phenomenon of soliciting other faces in order to see her own. So we can better understand how this looks uh, by looking at another, how this works by looking at another British Jewish figure who appropriated black American culture, Ali G. Do you guys know who Ali G is? Okay, so Sasha, just to give you a quick, Sasha Baron Cohen, a British Jewish actor um, and comedian, had a character called Ali G, and he did some of these kind of uh, faux interviews, kind of like they do on The Daily Show, where he would go and speak with serious intellectuals and politicians in the guise of this um, kind of hip hop poser. So he used a fake Jamaican accent, uh, so, he sounded British, but black British, not white British, right? He, he, he adopted some Jamaican sounds. Um, he glorified guns, gangs, drugs, dollars, not pounds. Um, he would wear like a huge dollar bill medallion. Um, and so he was basically a Cambridge-educated British Jew um, pretending to be a hip-hop poser. <laughs> so he was doing satirically what Winehouse was doing in earnest. Um, and like Amy Winehouse, he somehow had permission right, to perform in blackface, and I'm using that term very liberally, uh, because of the historically slippery relationship between Jewishness and blackness. And it's really interesting. I, I'm not quite sure what it means. I'd love to talk about it a little bit more. Why uh, these British Jews are looking overseas to America um, when there are plenty of black people in uh, Britain and uh, there is a black uh, British culture as well. So Amy Winehouse's blackface, and if I can use that term really liberally again here, um, it's not a secret. Her talent was admired by many black musicians in the US and the UK. Her producers would often play her music uh, blindly to people, only to shock them by revealing that she's not a 65-year-old black woman, but in fact a 20-something white Jewish girl. So, I mean, the, the, she won Best UK Female at the UK's MOBO Awards, which are the uh, Music of Black Origin Awards. And again, the connection between um, Jews and black music is not a secret. It's not just located in the jazz era in the 20s in Tin Pan Alley. It's also the Jewish songwriters behind 1960s doo-wop, like Carol King, maybe most famously, um, and the Jewish producers at the helm of hip-hop stardom. And that relationship is also what enabled Amy to declare something like, I have the music taste of an old Jewish man. So old Jewish men are listening to Ella Fitzgerald and Etta James, according to Amy Winehouse. So Michael Rogan, who wrote a great book that I unfortunately I don't have, called White uh, Black Face, White Noise, um, he writes about the American Jewish um, urge to become white through blackface performance in the first part of the 20th century. And his claim is that minstrelsy or blackface performance is an assimilationist tactic. So that's sort of what I've been saying as well, that Jews put on, literally put on black makeup in order to create a contrast between blackness and themselves, to draw out the white face behind the black paint. So this is how Jews become white. And what I'm saying about Amy Winehouse and Ali G is almost the inverse, right? Here Jews are putting on blackface in order to assert their Jewishness, or they're able to do it because they are Jewish, um, as an expression of their Jewishness. It's important to acknowledge that the outcome for actual black culture is the same in either case, 
right? They are silenced, um, and, they are, and they are occupying the lowest rung in this hierarchy. And we see this hierarchy on Downton Abbey. Lady Rose, who is the niece of the Earl of Grantham, she falls on season four for a black jazz musician from America. It ends with a proposal, she agrees, they're gonna be this wonderful multicultural couple, a, a sort of idea that did not exist at the time. Because he doesn't want her to be frowned upon by her society, um, Jack, the, the singer, calls off the engagement. She cannot possibly marry a black American and still be Lady Rose. It would just end her status. It's just, it was not a possibility in that world. It was a possibility that she was testing for, but it, it couldn't possibly happen. So it's no accident then that in the following season, she meets another guy and falls in love with him, Atticus Aldridge, a Jew. The scale of aristocratic acceptability tips in favor of the Jew here, right? Because their wedding actually takes place, although Atticus's father and Lady Rose's mother disapprove of the union. It still is a possibility. So Lord Cinderby, that's Atticus's father, worries about having Anglican grandchildren. And his concern is a function of his own success. He became nouveau riche, right? He adopted the social practices of the nobility. He earned himself a title. Um, and because of that, it was possible for his son to meet Lady Rose and uh, begin this relationship. While the relationship between Jack, the jazz singer, and Rose could not have actually been seen through, um, the, the relationship between the Jew and Lady Rose actually happens although they end up moving to New York because there's no real place for them uh, in the society, in the world of Downton Abbey. But Atticus's position as Rose's second fiance firmly locates the British Jew in relation to black America, once again, um, treading that boundary between black and white. So Amy Winehouse's Ernest and Ali G's satirical use of black American culture do the same thing. They locate Jewishness within a cultural hierarchy, one step removed from dominant, but not entirely at the bottom. This enables Jewish Jews to assert their Jewishness without having to imbue it with much content. You know, she wore a Star of David sometimes in her performances. Um, oftentimes when interviewers would ask about her bad girl image, she would come back at them and say, I'm just a Jewish girl. In other words, a nice Jewish girl. But it, it, once again, we see this British Jewish popular culture fashioning itself in the footsteps of black American culture. So it, this, a similar phenomenon happened in the US. I'm gonna talk about this book called Roots Two, which I strongly recommend. Um, the black pride movement of the 1960s served as a model for um, white ethnic groups to begin asserting their own pride in their own ethnicities. So it is at this time, the late 60s and early 70s, where suddenly uh, you can be Irish American, Italian American, and be so proudly. Polish American was another group. Um, these groups had their own holidays, Columbus Day, St. Patrick's Day. They had parades. They had their own foods. Um, this was the start of white ethnicity becoming um, a powerful signifier of what it means to be American. So the idea of the Plymouth Rock ideal, the pilgrim uh, American with really firm roots in America, gets replaced with another kind of ideal, the Ellis Island ideal of whiteness. Again, this always is coming at the expense of actual black people in America, Native Americans and other people of color who are not coming in on ships 
as the poor huddled masses, but they're coming in in different ways. So if blackface was an assimilationist tactic for American Jews, it was not without consequences, as I've said. It helped Jews, not just for blacks, but also for Jews. It helped Jews become white, right, by creating this distance between themselves, this contrast between white, uh, their white and black that they approximated in their performances, but Jewish blackface also uh, created an association between Jewishness and black culture, part of what allows Amy Winehouse, L.E.G. to give us these performances, um, and especially through music. So in other words, the distance uh, blackface creates between Jew and black was also a rapprochement. So it also creates an association because Jews were the main performers of blackface. So there's a connection and an association that's a part of that distancing. Um, and that's part of why Jews occupy this middle space. They couldn't get entirely up to the top, the dominant rung on the cultural hierarchy. So if public British Jewish figures are not entering the public sphere as Jews, um, the way so many public American figures are, think about Woody Allen, John Stewart, Barbra Streisand, the Beastie Boys, Natalie Portman. There's, I'm sure we could list a ton here. Uh, I think that it's possible, um, this is my concluding idea, which is complete speculation, that the tide may be shifting a little bit uh, in Great Britain, where we don't see them entering the public sphere as Jews. And I think that this change coincides with uh, Amy Winehouse's rise to fame. Um, and, I, and I believe that the shift can be accounted for by looking at another uh, marginalized group in England, a much larger, more visible minority, Muslims. The Muslim minority, uh, also religious, ethnic, racial, racial group, really deeply diverse, um, that idea of tolerance, of keeping a low profile, did not work for them. And so in response, they became assertive and open about their Muslimness, if we can call it that. I believe that Jews are, because of that, able to also become more assertive about their Jewishness. Um, and, and the low profile thing is no longer a necessity for them because other cultures are asserting their pride. Um, so that's my kind of concluding thought. And as another, the other two books that I brought are just two examples of how this is happening in the past uh, decade or so. Um, an Orange Award winner for new writers, Disobedience. This is a fiction book by Naomi Alderman about, um, but it's sort of semi-autobiographical about growing up in an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood in England and then uh, escaping from that. And then this is the Man Booker Prize in 2010, The Finkler Question by uh, British author Howard Jacobson, which expressly deals with um, the Jewish question, let's say, or the Jewish phenomenon um, in England. So this is entering the discourse now in the past few years. And I think time is up and we can ask some questions or if there's something that I said that was crazy, call me on it now. Okay.